Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Belis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Hey guys, this is the last episode in our series, Theology in Practice, Knowing God Changes Who We Are and How We Engage with the World. Today, I had the chance to talk with Rebecca McLaughlin, who answered some really difficult questions about Christianity. We pray this conversation helps you look to scripture for answers to the hard questions that you maintain, and that it'll be a resource for you as you navigate difficult conversations of your own. Rebecca, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. It's great to be here. It's absolutely lovely to have you. I've been digging into your book and have recommended it to many people here at Dartmouth. It's such a help, Rebecca. I know it won Christianity Today's Book of the Year. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that was a pleasant surprise. (laughs) Was that your first book? Yes. That's so wonderful. And you guys are really close. Had COVID-19 not been on our doorstep, I would have been like, hey, can I come interview you in person? (laughs) <laughs> right. So so much has changed. You guys are on lockdown over there, right? I mean, it's not in forced lockdown, but we are taking a pretty careful view of it as a family just for the sake of neighbors and friends. Absolutely. We're in the same boat up here. So thanks for joining me in spite of the circumstances. I guess it's a good time to do like virtual interviews and stuff like that. Right. Right. Indeed. <laughs> uh, well, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about who you are and what you do? I'd love for them to know more about what your day to day life looks like. Sure. So I come from the UK originally, as you may discern from my unusual accent, uh, though I'm married to a guy from Oklahoma. I saw that in your book, actually. I'm from Oklahoma originally, and I meant to ask, and I totally forgot till you mentioned it. Yeah, no, my, my in-laws live in Tulsa now, so that's our regular every other Christmas um, visiting. <laughs> visiting <spots. laughs> yeah. So yeah, Brian and I have uh, three kids now who are nine, seven, and one and a half. So that's a, an interesting world to be in. That's quite the age gap. Yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of the age gap because it means my older kids can take care of my little boy. <laughs> That's so great. I I have a six-year-old and she's quite helpful with my one-year-old, but I can only imagine if she had a few more years under her belt. Right, exactly. No, the, my, my seven-year-old actually is particularly competent, more so than my nine-year-old. I mean, <laughs> just the way that they're wired. Yeah, so I divide my time between um, hanging out with them, um, doing speaking and writing from a Christian perspective, and I also have a little communications company mm-hmm. where I'm with some communications professors um, or vocal communications and we're helping people um, in a range of fields mm-hmm. become better speakers. Yeah, that's so wonderful. And don't you work also with uh, professors who are at colleges that are believers and helping them just kind of share their faith in that context? 
Yeah, so I spent nine years up until a couple of years ago working for an organization called the Veritas Forum. Okay. Um, my main role there by the end was working with Christian professors at leading secular universities, uh, you know, like, like Dartmouth, and helping first to identify them, you know, f- find them, root them out, and then encourage them that their voice was actually extremely important and something that people within the university and beyond needed to hear. And then just helping to equip and empower them to speak more broadly, whether it was at a public event in a university or writing articles uh, or doing interviews, but finding ways to talk about their faith in relation to their work to a public audience. Well, it's so helpful. I told my husband we were in the military for eight years and he was stationed at Fort Campbell in Kentucky, so still down south. And we were coming up to Dartmouth and trying to prepare just for the different questions that we might interface with, given the nature of the differences culturally. And we were looking into different apologetics books and things like that, and then came across your book. And it's just been such a help because you do reference so many professors and things like that from the more prestigious universities. And so it's just a real help to those of us who are in kind of an academic context. But really at large, I'm just so excited for people to have access to a resource that's going to help us navigate our postmodern culture. And so I would love to talk about that a little bit. What is postmodernism? Maybe for someone who doesn't know what that is. And then could you kind of go into the idea of relative truth and how we see that surfacing in culture at large? So this has been an idea, uh, at least for the last few decades, that's become more and more prevalent and certainly was the world in which I was growing up and, and you know, going, going to school and, and talking with, with friends, where the idea of, of, of religious truth claim being universal and exclusive. So, for example, Christianity saying that Jesus is not just a way to God, but in fact, the way to God. Right. That that was um, just an unacceptable claim to make because we, we all have different cultural biases. And so all of us are going to come to claims of truth with, with those lenses in place. And that means that we, we can't actually make any kind of universal truth claim. Um, we can't say that Christianity is true universally. We could say it's true for me, mm-hmm. so long as you're allowed to say that Islam is true for you and another friend to say Hinduism is, is true for them. Right. And what's interesting there is I think there's a, there's a useful insight at the heart of that, which is, yeah, we do all have biases. The reality is I'm going to approach any kind of truth claim with my own biases in place. And it's good for me to be aware of that and to say, actually, I need to be a little skeptical of my biases. But if we push that to the point of saying, therefore, there is no such thing as universal objective truth, we end up with so many problems. Mm-hmm. Go into them, please. Yeah. So, so we have a problem when it comes to history, for instance. hmm if we say that religious truth claims can only be subjective, like personal, and you know, couldn't could be true for me, but but not making a claim on you as well. Right. And if we recognise that Christianity, in particular, makes a, a very important historical truth claim about the resurrection of Jesus, on on which Christianity stands or falls, and that even if we look at the two most similar world religions, the, the other two major monotheistic religions, they actually make different claims about the resurrection. So. Christians say that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Jews say that he died and remained dead, you know, as do Hindus and, and Buddhists and atheists. Uh, and Muslims say he didn't die, but that he just seemed to die. Now, those are claims on historical truth. Right. And they can't all be true. You can't say that Christianity 
Judaism and Islam, even the three, as I say, monotheistic religions, are all true without doing violence to the reality of historical truth. And folks would want to say, well, you know, that's no big deal. Actually, really, it is. Because as soon as we start saying there's no such thing as objective truth in history, that unravels everything. I mean, it, it means we totally. can no longer say the Holocaust happened. Yeah. We can no longer say slavery happened. And actually, you can no longer say I am married to my husband. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And a woman, um, you know, as part of the Me Too movement can no longer say I was sexually abused by this person. Yeah. It's just their perspective, right? Right. So we have a historical problem if we commit ourselves to the idea that all religions are just equal, equally true, and we can't, you know, say that one being true means that others are, are not true. We also have the problems when it comes to to the claims of science, because actually, if there's no such thing as objective truth, then that means there's no such thing as scientific truth either, and we can't say, you know, the law of gravity is is actually something that's true across the world. You know, we suddenly get into this very weird space of saying, if there really is no such thing as objective truth, then you know, we, ha- we have ripples of that going throughout our, our scientific thinking. And then even if we think about the very claim, there's no such thing as objective universal truth, that is an objective universal truth claim. And so it itself is undermined <laughs> by its own by its own premise. Yeah, <laughs> you come full circle there. And yet it's such a common thing. I mean, Rebecca, I have had people in my house and we're talking about the gospel and things like that. And then they'll say something like, well, you know, I found my truth. And, you know, I've even been in church with people and we're in a really great, wonderful church here. And they'll just say, like, I kind of found my way. And here's what yeah. my way looks like. It's a real issue. Why is it so important for us to acknowledge that truth exists? And like, how does that flesh itself out in the context of our evangelism and then also just in our faith? Because I think a lot of us might actually believe this. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the major confusions that many people have both within the church and outside is that to say that Jesus is the only way Mm -hmm. is disrespectful to people of other religious beliefs. Right. And that it's associated with being kind of unkind and dismissive or hostile. And maybe haughty or prideful. Right, right, right. So there are a few problems with that. Number one is Jesus taught us to love even our enemies, not just to tolerate our enemies, but actually to love them. So the idea that saying that Jesus is the only way to God implies that we should be dismissive, hostile, unkind, unloving to people who who disagree with us mm-hmm. actually doesn't marry with Jesus's teachings at all. Mm-hmm. The idea that by disagreeing with somebody, you are necessarily being unloving is a very common view and, and one that I think you know, hamstrings us often in our evangelism because we sort of worry, oh, well, like, am I just being culturally insensitive? Am I being rude and disrespectful by, by making this claim? It's interesting, even if we think right now about the situation we're in with COVID-19, mm-hmm. you could be having a conversation with somebody, you know, maybe you're, you're calling your, your mom or <laughs> calling a friend. And you're saying, hey, I think there's a there's a real situation here right. where people's lives are on the line. And they may not want to hear that. It's very possible that like, you could be talking to your, your mom or your, your grandma and they could yeah. be saying, oh, I don't think that's really true. And, you know, it, it seems kind of mean for you to say you, you don't want to come and see me right now. And you're saying, no, it's not that I don't want to come and see you right now. Totally. I think I could be putting your life in danger by doing that. Mm-hmm. You could be being actually very loving to somebody by insisting on a truth that they don't, don't want to believe. 
Totally. We see that in parenting all the time, right? I mean, you and I both are in the throes of it. And it would be unloving if we didn't correct our children or if we didn't offer them the truth when it comes to real tangible things that that will have like a real consequence in their life if they don't listen. And then the idea that it's arrogant of us as Christians to claim that Jesus is any way I think arises because often we Christians do behave arrogantly. And so I think with any of these things, it's like our sin has, has clouded the, the picture. But if you look at what, what Paul says in, in 1 Timothy, I find it very striking, 1 Timothy one um, fifteen, Paul says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. In order to become a Christian, we must recognize that we are morally bankrupt, that we have no right to put ourselves above anybody else, morally speaking. You know, the Apostle Paul himself, said that the reason he had been saved was to show that even somebody as bad as him yeah. could be saved by Jesus. I've sometimes found, you know, sharing the gospel with people, they are very quick to hear it as me saying, I think I'm better than you. So I think mm-hmm. I just need to specifically address that. As you prepare for the summer, we want to share a unique way to introduce your non-believing friends to a local church, Skylark. If you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, you need to know about Skylark Summer Camp for your kids or as a means to supplement evangelism. Skylark partners with gospel-centric churches to provide summer camps as a means of childcare. By meeting parents' needs for summer childcare for kids having completed kindergarten through fifth grade, Skylark positions the local church to meet the spiritual needs of their community. They offer gospel-rich curriculum that is new each day of their summer camp. Kids can attend for one week, a few weeks, or all 11 weeks. Choose from one of their four locations offering a full summer program in Dallas, Plano, Allen, and Mansfield. The cost is $325 a week, but you can use the code JOURNEYWOMEN for 50% off every single week. What? Head on over to campskylark.com to learn more. That's C-A-M-P-S-K-Y-L-A-R-K.com and use the code JOURNEYWOMEN for 50% off. How do you push against that in your conversations? Because I know you're having these like conversations where you're really digging into the hard questions that quite honestly, Rebecca, like I'm afraid to go there because I just don't feel smart enough. So how do you lay that foundation in a conversation uh, with somebody when you're hoping to share what you believe and engage them with the gospel? Yeah, I think coming back as frequently as possible to the fact that I myself, yeah, right here, right now, a pretty miserable sinner, it is helpful because A, it's true, <laughs> and B, it means that I am guarded from trying to preach a gospel that's basically like, mm-hmm. look at me, I want to be like me. That's not what Christians are saying. Right. We're saying, look at Jesus and how great he is. And he he came for people even as, as bad as I am. Uh, one of the, the most helpful frameworks I've personally found for exposing how we, we might think we're good people, but actually we're not, is asking people, like, how would you feel if everybody could see your thoughts? Huh. And I, I've just finished the manuscript of a kid's book, which is for yes. 10 to 14 year olds. And the way I've put it there is, you know, when you're reading a comic book and you see that thought bubble over somebody's head, like that sort of cloud shaped bubble. Imagine if we each had our own personal thought bubble. Oh, no. Oh, no. I don't want to imagine this. (laughs) I've been saying to people, imagine somebody you really like, like one of your best friends or your spouse, mom or your kid. 
somebody you really like, imagine them being able to see your thoughts. Oof. Even that is horrifying. Yes. It's not just, oh, we sometimes have bad thoughts about people we, we really frankly don't like. Yeah. We have bad thoughts even about the people we like the most. Yes. And I find that helpful, A, as a reminder to myself of quite how miserably sinful I am, and B, just in terms of helping other people to see that in their own lives. And then to say, you know what, the one person who actually can see our thoughts, instead of running away from us as anybody else would, he ran towards us. Mm. Like the one person who truly does see and know everything about you, the good, the bad, and the extremely ugly, is the one who loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. And I think that this gets to the heart of a fundamental human desire, which is, I think we all long to be both known and loved. Yeah. And we often feel like we actually kind of have to choose between those two because, or we have to present the right, there are pieces of me that I could present to you that would make you love me more. Yeah. But they're actually, I've got to be really careful. There's quite a minefield there because there are a lot of things, if I expose them to you, you would not be even remotely impressed. So the fact is we go through our lives trying to navigate that tension between wanting to be known and wanting to be loved. And Jesus blows that apart and says, I know every inch of you. I know every thought in your life. I know every struggle of your heart. I know every jealous, envious, cruel, selfish, and unkind thing you've ever thought and done. And I still found that you were worth dying for. You know, one of the things that I loved that you did in your book is you just took that idea of like Christ coming down to dwell with us and offered a distinction between other major world religions just to help us see um, how Christianity is distinct in that way. What could it look like for you to incorporate that in a conversation when you're talking with somebody just about the most important question, which you thoughtfully described in your book is like, who is God? Yeah, I, I think one of the extraordinary advantages Christians have when it comes to the question, who is God, is that we have at least the claim that God has become flesh in the person of Jesus. And one of the things that I love to do, you know, people often say, well, Jesus never came to be God. And, and this idea that he was the son of God has grown up somehow over time. And if you look historically at how soon after the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the gospels were written, that actually isn't, isn't plausible. Mm -hmm. But this claim that Jesus never really said that he was God falls apart on almost every page of, of the gospel. Yes. Jesus was repeatedly doing things that only God could do. Uh, one of my favorite stories I think in Mark's gospel is when Jesus is presented with a, a paralyzed man. Uh, and his, his response to this man is to say, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of those looking on would think, well, Surely he's missing the point. This man's problem is not that his sins are forgiving. It's that he can't walk. Like you're missing <laughs> wrong diagnosis, Jesus, wrong, wrong solution. <laughs> but other people, that the, the sort of observant Jews around the place were saying, what on earth is he doing? Mm -hmm. Only God has the right to forgive sins. How dare he say your sins are forgiven? And then Jesus heals the man in order to show that he has the authority to forgive sins. Yeah. And we see time and again through story after story in the Gospels, Jesus claiming to be God in everything from calming a storm to forgiving sins to saying before Abraham ever was, I am. The idea that Jesus never claimed to be God is frankly farcical. Mm -hmm. And if we have, um, what Paul, as Paul puts it, the image of the invisible God in Jesus, then we can learn an awful lot about who God is through Jesus's life and teachings and through his, his death and resurrection. 
And it's things about God that we could never have dreamt up. We meet a God who is incredibly powerful, but he uses his power only to serve others. We meet Jesus who could have summoned legions of angels and instead chose to die in our place. We meet a man who puts together a whip to drive people out of the temple who are um, changing it from what it should be to to um, a house of prayer to being a, a place of commercial gain. But a man who incredibly tenderly welcomed sinners and held babies in his arms. We, we see all the the paradoxes of God in Jesus, and he's incredibly attractive. Mm-hmm. When you're talking, it's obvious that we pursue the answer to the question, who is God, through the word. I wonder if a lot of people listening are also like, that's such keen insight. Like, how could I possibly develop a knowledge of the text where I could communicate in such a way that I could lay that out for somebody else. Do you have any recommendations for those of us who just feel like, man, we're trying our best to study the word, but it's a real hardship to be able to communicate and to really absorb it and comprehend who God is in a way that we can share that organically with other people, not just in a formulaic way, uh, but in a way that can really speak to where they're at given their worldview. One of the things that I, I would love to see change in the next generation is the way that we Christians think about the Bible as um, being literal or not literal. I love this part of your book. This was so incredibly helpful for me. So often people will, will ask me, and I'm sure many of your listeners have been asking, you know, do you take the Bible literal? Right. And you want to say yes, because you're like, I know it means every word, but you forget what literal actually means and how right. to read things in context. Yeah, I think we've been very poorly taught, uh, often you know, within church context, on the fact that true and literal are not the same thing. Right. And I think when we unlock that... And we recognize that Jesus very frequently used metaphors, mm-hmm. uh, not because he wasn't speaking the truth to us, but because he was speaking truth to us in incredibly powerful ways. Right. That actually then unlocks ways for us to talk about him. So recently I've been thinking through how to explain the concept of hell to an unbeliever. Yeah. And or, or to a believer and not to say, I mean, it, it, the idea of explaining it almost trivializes it. But one of the things I've been doing is saying, if we take Jesus's claims about himself seriously, we will recognize the seriousness of being separated from him. So if Jesus is the light of the world, then being without Jesus means living in utter darkness. If Jesus is the bread of life, then being without Jesus means being desperately hungry. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then being without Jesus means being eternally lost. Mm -hmm. And if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then being without Jesus means being utterly, finally, hopelessly dead. Mm. And I think just really living into the the metaphors that Jesus uses about himself helps us to get a handle on who he really is. And then think about the, the stories, both the stories that he told and the stories that he lived one of my best friends always laughs at me because I, I kind of have a, a scripture crush on John chapter 11. I don't know if you have those words. <laughs> you kind of go through periods of just being like totally obsessed with one particular Oh, passage. yeah. Right now it's Psalm 121. Yes, I get it. Right. right. So I have a scripture crush on, on John 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus. Hmm. And that story is incredibly interesting to me because the, the headline news is actually not Jesus raises Lazarus. Yeah, which you would, I mean, that's the one we all remember. <laughs> right. The headline news is strung out over um, a long 
story where first Mary and Martha call to Jesus thinking that he'll come and heal their brother and he doesn't come. And it's so interesting. I think it's in verse five. It says that because he loved Mary and Martha and their brother, he didn't come. And you're thinking, well, how can that, how can that be? And then you see Jesus deliberately waiting until Lazarus has died, then going to meet with Mary and Martha. Martha comes out to him and he has this conversation with her in which we get those incredibly famous words, I am the resurrection and the life. Yeah. And Jesus very deliberately set up that conversation so that he could say to Martha, actually, you think your greatest need right now is having Lazarus back, but your greatest need right now is me. I am the resurrection and the life. And we then see Jesus going with Mary and Martha to Lazarus's tomb and weeping with them, Mm. which tells us that in the midst of our suffering, it's not that it doesn't matter to God. It matters enough to bring tears to the eyes of Jesus. But then, and then we see that this is the same Jesus who has the power to call Lazarus out of the grave. Mm. And walking through a story like that with somebody, I think, helps them to see who Jesus is, that he is incredibly powerful, extremely tender man who, who knows that our greatest need is him and who gives himself to us as his greatest gift. But sometimes we have to have everything else kind of cleared away to even be able to see that. I think that's the benefit of being in a time like we are right now with COVID-19. And, you know, a lot of things are cleared away. Our schedules are all clear. Our kids are home. Like we're not able to do so many of the things that we do that we typically would be tempted to look to for a sense of significance and worth. Mm -hmm. I think our culture at large, that is going to be what we will reckon with over, you know, the coming months as we continue to navigate this situation. And I know this is going to present really neat opportunities to talk to people about the hope that we have in Jesus as they are navigating maybe one of the most fear-struck, anxious times of their life. Mm -hmm. What would it look like for us to engage people with the hope of the gospel in the midst of a crisis? You and I both live in like incredibly diverse communities right now. I would also love to talk about what it looks like, not just to do that with people who look like us, but also people who are just very different, our neighbors, people that we're interfacing with, you know, just as we as we go, that may maintain very different beliefs than we do. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I may just conjoin those two questions together because you, you mentioned diversity there. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the biggest things that, we need to get our heads around is the fact that Christianity is the most diverse movement in all of history. Yes. The most racially, culturally, socioeconomically diverse movement in history. And that that is true globally. That's true over the last 2000 years. And it's true in America today. Because connecting back a little bit to the beginning of this conversation about how can we make exclusive truth claims about Mm -hmm. Jesus? People often hear that and they hear the, hear the word evangelism and they think of like a, you know, white Westerners forcing their beliefs down other people's yeah, throats. Yeah. Actually, what's happening right now in, across the world is that as white Westerners become less and less religious, the, the weight of Christianity is moving more and more toward people of color, both in, in the US and in other countries. Right. The most typical Christian today is a woman of color. Again, both in America and globally. And the, the most typical, like atheism is, is really the belief system of white Western men and communist regimes. So this idea that Christianity with its exclusive truth claims is against racial and cultural diversity actually has things completely the wrong way around. Mm-hmm. 
Christianity right now is the most evenly spread belief system across different geographies, races, cultures, et cetera, et cetera. And this is, I think, just helpful in terms of a little bit of a paradigm shift for, for, for non-Christians, particularly, you know, if friends who are, um, you know, we consider themselves sort of secular liberal folk who believe passionately in diversity mm-hmm. for good reasons. And that's something that I think we can actually cheer with them mm-hmm. for. But I think we need to represent to them that actually Christianity is the belief system that is most promoted diversity and that that, that came right from Jesus. So, so Jesus broke through every racial and cultural barrier of his day. Right. Uh, even, you know, you think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we usually, we first hear that as, oh, you have to love your neighbor even when it's really inconvenient, which is true. But actually, Jesus chose a Samaritan as the hero of that story quite intentionally because the Samaritans were the hated ethnic and religious group from his hero's perspective. Um, and, and he made a Samaritan the moral hero here. And so that, that it is as much a story about love across racial and religious difference as it is about love in a time where it, it's genuinely inconvenient and hard to go and care for somebody at the side of the street. And Jesus then told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we see the first African Christian in the book of Acts. We see at, at Pentecost, as the Spirit is poured out, we see people from all sorts of countries, including, I, I think it's like Iraq and Syria, like in that, that group, in that original group of Christians. And so this idea that Christianity is, is a white Western religion somehow falls apart on the pages of the scriptures, falls apart in the history of the world. And, and it's something I, I think we as Christians, for the sake of the church and also for the sake of our evangelism, we need to read diversity. Mm-hmm. And we also need to recognize that Christianity has always been a majority female movement. Yes, because so often people are trying to flip it on its head and say that it's oppressive to women because of women's roles in the church and different things like that. Yeah, and actually quite the reverse. I mean, at the time when Jesus was born, women were not considered equal to men. I mean, that just wasn't really a thing. <laughs> and men certainly were not expected to be faithful to one woman. No way. Like women were expected to be faithful. Men were not. Um, it's fine for men to sleep with other women and actually with other men as well mm-hmm. in general. Uh, and the way that Jesus treated women transformed how women were then treated. It's not to say, I mean, clearly Christians have made massive mistakes over the years and there's been a, you know, a ton of, of sin toward women from Christians. Mm-hmm. But, but Jesus genuinely changed the status of women forever. And it, it's fascinating. I, I only found this out as I was researching for my book, but the Greco-Roman world was apparently as much as two-thirds male due to a combination of um, women dying in childbirth wow. and uh, female infanticide. You know, baby girls were routinely left out to die. So you have a, a general culture that is as much as two-thirds male. Wow. The early church seems to have been as much as two-thirds female. That's so interesting. Yeah, and if you look even, you know, if you look today across the world, there are more Christian women than men. And that difference is not just that in general women are more religious than men. It's actually much more defined for Christianity versus, for example, Islam, which is you know, very much the closest competitor in terms of market share in the world, as it were. Mm-hmm. And then... The reality is that you know, in, in the US, there are more Christian women than men, and there always have been, and you know, likely always will be. So this idea that Christianity is like anti-women is strange when it genuinely is the greatest movement of and for women in all of history. That's fantastic. You know, when you were talking about different cultures and different people from all over the world who 
pledge allegiance to Christ. Mm. I loved in your book how you talked about how following Christ doesn't mean that we completely do away with our culture. Because like you said, I mean, people think that it's white Westerners imposing their culture, on Mm. you know, because of the Crusades and different things like that. How can we engage with whatever culture we're from, whether we be like one of my best friends here, Rebecca is from India, had an arranged marriage, and she and her husband both very much love Jesus. Yeah. How can they continue to maintain elements of their culture and to engage with it while also following Christ? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think, you know, you touched on the reality that it is certainly the case that white Westerners have many times used Christianity as a tool for, you know, either in some cases, kind of naively, and in other cases, wantonly, as it were, for imposing their culture on others. But that that isn't actually what Christianity is about, that from the first, I mean, it's fascinating to me that even the the languages of the scriptures are diverse. So we have the Old Testament, mostly in Hebrew. Right. Uh, We have the New Testament, mostly in Greek. We have little bits of Aramaic. Uh, We have the fact that... um, most of the the Jews of Jesus's day would have been reading the Old Testament scriptures in translation, actually into Aramaic. So, and and even the the inscription over Jesus' cross was in um, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, right? So we have a diversity of languages, even in the very text of the scriptures. And then we have this this great like racial diversity from the very first, as the church is springing up all over the place. And the church in India is extremely long, I mean, far, far older than the church in America. Hmm. It seems like there have been Christians in India since about the second century. Wow. And so the Christians' traditions within, within India are, you know, long, long and rich, even though it's a tiny minority of, of the country. And I think it's helpful for me to have friends who are from different countries right. and, you know, we are connecting on faith and sort of learning from each other. Uh, just to be able to, to see that um, and to see how beautiful it is that Jesus really does call people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And that it's not about what food do we eat or what language do we speak or what clothes do we wear right. or or even, honestly, whether we have an arranged marriage or not, like mm-hmm. shocking as that is to our Western 21st century is. It's about are we following Jesus? And I think seeing a, a rich diversity of, of culture within the church is, again, going to be a great witness to our non-believing friends. As you're talking, I'm thinking about this conversation that I shared with Rosaria Butterfield in the Mm. context of this series about hospitality. And I was asking her about welcoming one another into our homes and sharing the gospel. And one of the things that really struck me is something that's also striking me in our conversation today, that this starts with us knowing who God is. This starts with us really engaging with the scriptures and living out what we believe in our everyday life. Like this is not a joke. This is not just you have to share your faith to be, you know, checking that box. This is like an all encompassing reality for us as believers. So do you have any encouragement for somebody who's just sitting on the sidelines a little bit and looking on and thinking, this is this part of my life. Christianity is here. I do read my Bible, you know, every few days and I do go to church on Sunday mornings and I'm involved in Bible study, but like 
that's here in this kind of segmented part of my life. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. encompass me in a way that I would actually want to get my hands dirty and have real hard conversations with other people that could be disruptive and could create friction in my relationships. Yeah, yeah. A personal transition that I went through a few years ago was from thinking that in order to be a good Christian witness, I really just needed to present the the shiniest, happiest, um, you know, Christian exterior to to my friends, and that letting letting non Christians see my actual struggles and weaknesses was somehow I don't know undermining my witness because if I'm following Jesus, I'm meant to be just like really happy and all together, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. a few years ago, I kind of went through the transition of saying oh, maybe actually it's much better if I let non-believing friends in on my struggles and weaknesses. Yeah. Because then, A, they open up about their struggles and weaknesses and we're suddenly having a much more real conversation. And B, it means that it's harder for them to mishear me as saying, I think I'm better than you, or you know, Jesus is some sort of icing on the cake of my wonderful life. And more about what are we doing when we're desperate? Who do we turn to? Yes. And I think one of the things that I see in my own life and and that I'm trying to sort of communicate to others is we're not choosing between Christianity with all its like crazy beliefs and a perfectly coherent secular worldview that does all the same work for us that Christianity does, except without having to believe in crazy things like, you know, people rising from the dead and, you know, all all the the things that Christians are often sort of. (laughs) We're choosing between Christianity and nothingness. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, to be fair, which is between Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism, in terms of like major world religions, there are competing stories out there. But actually, the atheist story is the least compelling. Because from the perspective of atheism, we don't even know what a human being is. We have no account Mm -hmm. of you are or what on earth I am. I'm reading a fascinating book at the moment called uh, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World by an atheist historian called uh, Tom Holland. And he's looking back over the last 2,000 years and saying, okay, so the things that today Western secular, like atheist folk, or even just like wouldn't go so far as say they're atheists, but like non-religious folk, the things that they think of as self-evident moral truths are actually inheritances from Christianity. So our idea that all humans are equally morally valuable, the idea that men and women are equal, the idea that love across racial difference is a good thing, the idea that the poor and the marginalized and the weak should be cared for and provided for by the rich and the strong and the powerful. All of these are Christian ideas. Yes. And so even our atheists are sort of Christian atheists and helping them to see that, no, really, if you take Jesus out of this picture, everything else falls apart. Then I think that that puts people just into a different place. And, and we need to do that with with tenderness and humility, not just as sort of arrogant, like, gotcha, but to say, Hey, you know, it's interesting because if, if you look at the history of ideas, like we only think these things because of because of Christianity, actually, even the ways in which my non-Christian friends would critique Christians or critique the history of the church. It's according to Christian standards. I love the story of the lady in your book. Uh, I think she was a professor. Do you remember the story that, that yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. referencing? Like, can you tell that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's my friend Sarah Irving Stonebreaker. And fun side note, she was one of the few people who knew both me and my husband before we knew each other. Oh, that's wonderful. 
it's been delightful for both of us. And Brian was actually a lot closer to her than I was. Uh, and so it's been lovely for both of us to find out that one of our, you know, not very clearly non-Christian friends from grad school is now a very serious Christian. <laughs> sort of, we regularly reflect on how delightful this is. So yeah, Sarah, um, she comes from Australia, uh, extremely smart, you know, got scholarship to go to Cambridge in the UK to do her PhD. She was convinced atheist when she was at Cambridge doing her PhD. She was convinced atheist when she went to Oxford. But while she was at Oxford, she went to a series of lectures by an atheist philosopher named Peter Singer, who's a professor at Princeton. And Singer is a very smart man and a very consistent thinker. And one of the things he says from his atheist perspective is we shouldn't treat all human beings as equally morally valuable because they're humans. Instead, we should evaluate beings, whether they're human or not, according to their capacities. So, for example, their capacity to suffer, etc. And by Singer's calculation, a newborn infant is less morally valuable than an adult cow. Wow. And so as Sarah heard this, she felt what she later described as a, a sort of intellectual vertigo as she realized that all of her deepest moral beliefs were actually pulling her against atheism, not they mm-hmm. were supported by her, her atheist beliefs. And that started her on a process that ended in her becoming a Christian because you know she thought that universal human rights and equality for women and care for the poor and marginalized yeah. was the opposite of Christianity. And instead she discovered it was Christianity was the basis for those things. Yes, I love that so much. Okay, it's so clear, Rebecca, that you've done so much careful thought. And I mean, honestly, this is not just like a infomercial for your book, but genuinely, like you've been such a help to the church. I know that's why, you know, your book was chosen as the book of the year by Christianity Today. It's a wonderful text, and it's also just a wonderful resource for going and getting access to some of these documents and helps that will really be a use to us as we evangelize. Can you tell us what are some helpful things that we could do to prepare for the hard conversations that we will inevitably confront as we move toward others with a willingness to have hard conversations? Mm. I think one of the areas where probably all of us feel least equipped and most uh, sort of afraid of, of the conversations that are probably around sexuality. And I think that's partly because, you know, if you say you're, you're a Christian and, you know, you believe that God made the world, people might well think you're stupid. But if you say you're a Christian and you think that, that Christians shouldn't be allowed to enter into same-sex marriages, you stop being an idiot. Oh, you, you're still an idiot. Yeah. But you're actually also now a hateful bigot. Yes. Uh, that really hurts our hearts as Christians. Yeah. That's not how we want to feel or how we want others to see us. And I think the two ways I've seen many churches go is on the one hand, people saying, okay, what we need to do right now is adapt to the culture. Right. We need to find a way to say that the Bible doesn't really say that it's not okay for two men or two women to be married. And we need to accommodate our theology to this cultural moment. Mm Mm-hmm. And people do that with the best intentions, like people do thinking that it's the most loving thing that they could be doing, et cetera, et cetera. But as someone who's always been romantically attracted to women, you know, I've searched the scriptures pretty carefully on this. And it is simply not a viable reading of of the texts. Uh, The the clear, bright, white lines are very clear and bright and white that reserve sex for male, female, heterosexual, exclusive marriage. So that, that's one way people go. The other way people can go is to sort of almost double down on a, a kind of culture warsy view of things to say, we're the church over here. We have a sort of sense of hostility toward the LGBT community over there. And I think that also actually ends up being quite 
unbiblical and, and unhelpful, not least because within your church, you have people within your church who are same-sex attracted. Like just statistically, that's that's highly likely to be the case. Many of them, like me, and I'm, I'm actually in the most typical kind of same-sex attracted person, which is a woman who is attracted to, to other women, but not exclusively so to where I couldn't be married to a man. That's actually the most typical kind of LGBT person. Hmm. So, so we have to recognize that within our own church families, there are people who are going to be struggling in this area having those experiences. And we also have to recognize that all of us, for the sake of the gospel, are going to need to say no to some of our desires. So in, to some extent, we're all kind of in the same boat and making it very much a them and us situation. It is and has always been unhelpful. It's really useful for people, particularly those who don't personally struggle with same-sex attraction, to hear from Christians who do, mm-hmm. both so that they themselves can get more of a handle on what that means for a Christian's lived experience, what things it makes hard, uh, etc. Uh, so they can be a better brother or sister to folks within the church, but also so that they they have a way of talking to those outside the church where they won't just be heard as homophobic bigots who don't get it. Right. And I, I've there's a chapter in my book where I, I talk about that. I featured my best Christian friend in the book. Um, her name is Rachel. And she's one of the people who I think speaks most compellingly from a, out of a history of same-sex um, sexual relationships, you know, came to Christ when she was an undergrad at Yale, um, out of context. And so genuinely is not in any sense a homophobic bigot, but is also very good on the theology here and how we as Christians can think Christianly about these questions, both with the church and outside. So mm-hmm. a great starting place would be to, to buy her book and read it. It's a very easy, page-turny kind of read. But that that will help people, I think, uh, a handle on you know, how to think through this issue for themselves, how to talk to non-Christian friends about it as well. Mm-hmm. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. I could talk to you for hours and hours, you know, just hearing your knowledge of the text and knowing, too, that you're in a season where you have little kids in the house. And many of our listeners are in that season as well, where it's just hard to find pockets of time. And maybe the pockets of time that we find, (laughs) it's hard to fill them intentionally engaging with scripture. Mm -hmm. Do you have any recommendations for us as we go about just continuing to grow in our understanding of God's word? Yeah. So interestingly for me, even recently, I've had to this very practical level. At the beginning of this year, I thought, you know what, I really have to start exercising. Like I'm getting to an age where I can't just pretend my body will continue doing just fine forever without actually exercising routinely. But then there's that whole challenge of, well, I really want to exercise before I take a bath. I'm English, so I take baths, not showers. Strange. So I do I. Yes. Yeah, yes, I yes, yes. I didn't know that baths were <laughs> weird until I went to college. And my roommate, I told her, I was like, you know, the one thing I really miss about this whole dorm room situation versus living at home is like taking a bath. And she was like, yeah. that's like swimming in your own filth. And I was like, wow, I've exclusively bathed. <laughs> Brooke says he can count the number of showers I've taken on two hands, like in yeah. our marriage. <laughs> Yeah, bath is, is the way to go. But anyway, that aside, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, man, I really need to exercise before I, but because I mean, who has time with two jobs and three kids right? to have two like washings of oneself in a day? <laughs> yeah, I can only get into new clothes once. Like, just we got to simplify things. But then, you know, I have three kids, including one who's one and a half. There's only so early I can get up, and right. I actually also can't. I'll disturb the family. I'm giving into too many details here, but I was like. I've been so, it's been so deeply ingrained in me that one should have one's quiet time first in the morning. Yeah. 
that it was really hard for me to say, you know what, I actually think this would be much better if I read the scriptures during Luke's nap rather than yeah. first thing in the morning. When frankly, the fact that I have three kids roaming around has been an inhibition for quite some time. So I, and I'm not saying this is the right answer for everyone, but I have moved my Bible time from first thing in the morning to nap time. And it's been incredibly helpful for me. Well, and the other thing that I'd encourage people to do in particular, I mean, this is a great opportunity um, presented to us by a terrible situation of needing to basically stay at home. But we, a few years ago, started a, a kind of family Bible time in the evenings, which we do before story time and, you know, before bed. I'm incredibly bad at playing the piano. Like I learned vaguely for about a year when I was 11 and I never got very far. But we have a basic keyboard and I can just about bang out a few, you know, worship songs on it all in C major. My <laughs> husband is incredibly bad at playing the, the guitar, but li- likewise, he can strum out a few few tunes I and so it. we have a little family Bible time where it's like a song, a Bible reading, and a prayer. And yeah. that's it. It's it's very simple. That's wonderful. Uh, my, my girls are nine and seven. So we've actually, we rotate who's reading and who asks the question. So last night, my seven-year-old read the little section of Acts that we were working through. And she then asked us questions to make sure we'd listened. Um, you know, she's like, mommy, what is the main point of this? So it's something that they can really participate in. That's nice. I think it's it's clearly important for us to have time in the word by ourselves. But actually, in some ways, it's easy for us to sort of to think very individualistically when most of Christian life is corporate. Yes. And there are ways that even with our own families, and particularly with our own families, we can just build in a habit of reading the Bible and praying together, even though, I mean... Let's be real. My 18-month-old ran around trying to <laughs> car, and like, it, there's there's plenty of chaos. Like, there's nothing. Nothing's picture perfect. Absolutely. Here. That's the way I do any spiritual discipline, scripture memory, or any of it, because I don't have time to go through my scripture memory cards individually. But we just have started memorizing scripture as a family, and it really does help it to become kind of the fabric of our family culture. And I think that makes it so much easier to do what we're talking about, where we welcome people in because it's like, this is just how we do. It's a Deuteronomy 6. Like as we go, we're just kind of, you know, talking about it. It's as we sit, as we rise, it's all over the place and you can't really get around it. So you're going to interface with it. And it's going to be in a way that hopefully, I don't know, helps them see the authenticity of it, which I think makes it a lot more palatable. So that's definitely one of my simple joys. You know, baths are definitely one of my simple joys. Another question that I ask every guest that comes on the show to try uh, to get to know you a little bit better is what are three of your simple joys, Rebecca? Well, genuinely, my bath in the morning is a daily joy. Okay. With this and the Oklahoma husband, I'm thinking I'm going to have to make a trip down to Cambridge. (laughs) (laughs) Second, like a daily joy. I, I'm currently reading the Harry Potter series to my seven-year-old. Oh, I read it to my nine-year-old, and now, uh, so and then wonderful. I read it Lord of the Rings, and now the seven-year-old's old enough for it. Yes, and just lying in bed with my kids reading to them uh, is, yes, yes, yes. is definitely a daily joy. We just got onto the Chronicles of Narnia because you know it's hard, it's been a hard transition to go from picture books to books with no pictures. Right. But my daughter is just now getting in. We're reading The Magician's Nephew, and it has been so thrilling for me as someone who loves to read. So definitely share yeah, that one as lovely. well. 
a third daily joy. I think, like I said, I have two best friends, one who lives in London um, and one who might as well live in London right now because we can't actually see each other, even though she lives 20 minutes away. Yes. And just being in touch with them. I'm, I'm such a big believer in the importance of, of close friendship. Yes. Whether, whether you're married or not, people sometimes think, oh, friendship is for single people. Yes, it's also for married people and it's for yes. old people, it's for young people. It's like, I, I love how Jesus says, you know, greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for his friends. Um, and I have the joy of having two people, you know, again, one's a Christian and one's not at all a Christian. Hmm. You know me really well and still manage to love me. And um, that's delightful. I love that so much. Well, the other question that I love to ask, because Journey Women really is, it started, the origin was me welcoming on my own mentors just to share them with other people. And now we get to talk to people who have influenced me at a distance like yourself. And we'd love to hear from you. Who is it that's had the greatest impact on your journey with Jesus? Gosh, that's a that's a really good question. Um, one of the funny things about my, my life right now is that I go to a church where I've just turned 40 and like, I'm basically the oldest person I know. I mean, oh, <laughs> yeah. ridiculously young church where all my friends are five to 10 years younger than me and there's hardly anyone um, older. So when you talk about Christian mentors right now, I'm like, well, <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? I could pick a number of people, but when I was in college, the pastor of our church was a delightful and really thoughtful guy um, who I was sort of good friends with in as, in as much as one can be as a student in a large student church. And one of the things I appreciate most about Mark was the way that he died. He got terminal cancer, and so he knew he was going to die for about six months. And he used that opportunity to basically teach the rest of us how to die well. Wow. He'd send out this sort of email newsletter where he'd say things like, I went to the hairdressers today, and I thought it would be a great opportunity because, you know, she asked how I was, and I said, well, actually, I'm dying. I'm going to be dead in a few months' time. And he thought this would be a great like, opportunity to share the gospel. And in fact, <laughs> he just couldn't talk to him at all. But seeing even at a distance, because I'd already moved to the US by the time he was going through this, but seeing at a distance, somebody dying really well, as he was getting towards the end, he said, I'm so glad that it looks like I'm going to get to the end of my public ministry without utterly disgracing the name of Christ. Hmm. And I think that has stayed with me because any of us in any kind of Christian ministry are one major moral mistake away from disgracing the name of Christ in public. Mm -hmm. And we've got to be real about that. And then as he was, you know, very close to dying, he would say to his wife, home soon, home soon. That was like all he could really say at that point. And so I think his process of dying has been a major spiritual influence on me as I live. Wow. That is amazing. I'm so thankful for him. And Rebecca, I'm really genuinely, I hope I'm not blowing smoke, as we say in the military. <laughs> where <my husband. laughs> You are such a blessing to to me and to the the church at large thank you so much for all of your research all of the time that you've invested um, and just helping to equip us to better know who god is and how we can share him with others it's been a joy to chat with you today thanks so much we pray this conversation with rebecca challenges you equips you and encourages you to pursue similar conversations with people in your own local context If you found this episode helpful, be sure to go back and listen to other episodes in this series and share them with a friend. You can find all the details about every episode of Journey Women on our website at journeywomenpodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check out the survey in our show notes that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode before midnight on May the 4th. As a reminder, we are breaking after this series to plan and record upcoming episodes that will launch at the end of June. 
In the meantime, make sure you're following us on social media at Journey Women Podcast because we have some really amazing stuff that we've been working on to share with you guys. Today's episode was edited by Christine Brandt from christinebrandt.info. We are so grateful for her and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. We can't wait to see you here this summer.